Hey, everybody. Welcome to The 180 with Eric Lockley. I'm your host, Eric Lockley. There are moments in life that define us, that set us down one path or plunge us down a completely different path. Join me as we dive into our guests' turning points. Let's laugh, heal, and be inspired together as we pull back the curtain on how our guest made the 180. Sometimes life gets hard when you're on your journey. Don't stop, keep going, you can turn it around. The 180, yes, it's a big change. The 180, it's so good to have to say it twice. I'm good. <laughs> you can do it. Say yes to your beautiful future. I love a falsetto, Night. so you, you better yes. do it. Is yes. that you singing? Yeah, it's me singing. Oh, multifaceted. I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much. You all here, our guest already. We have Ryan Dennis in the house. <laughs> I'm so honored that you're here, and I'm going to tell the people a little bit about you. Ryan Dennis is the chief curator and artistic director of the Center for Art and Public Exchange at the Mississippi Museum of Art. She is in charge of organizing exhibitions and overseeing acquisitions for the museum. Her work also includes establishing partnerships between the museum and the community in an effort to bridge the gap between the museum and the local community in Jackson, Mississippi. Prior to joining the museum, she worked for Project Row Houses in Houston, Texas as a curator and programs director. Ryan's work focuses on connecting local communities to art as well as curating diverse exhibits. Let's give a round of applause for Ms. Ryan Dennis. Thank you. Thank you. So happy to be here with you. Yes. Thrilled that you're here. How are you today? I'm doing well today. I was speaking with David earlier, and I think that's a, the question of like, how are you? Mm-hmm. Pre-COVID felt so like unhonest, like dishonest at times when you give an answer because yeah. like everyone's just kind of asking. And I don't know if people were always really interested in how you are, but it was like a, a nice gesture. Right. And now I feel like, you know, asking how are you and there's more like humanity that can be given in your answer. Mm. And I think also just recognizing like how you are in a moment is a moment to like ground and center and you know, just a lot more honesty in the question, the intention, and then the response. So totally. thank you for asking. I'm doing well. Yeah. I'm happy to be here with you. And that's always talking with people that you are intrigued by and like want to do something is mm. always a treat. So yes. Thank you. Yes. No, thank you. And thank you for that honest response and response to like being in the moment. I think also, once again, as relating to the pandemic, being truly present, like being like, I am here, I'm here with you is so relevant and is so necessary at this time to like truly be present with people. So um, I'm grateful for your presence. And it's game time on the 180. The name of the game is If It Weren't for Mississippi. Ooh, okay. <laughs> I hope not trivia. I'm kind of the worst, but we'll try it. <laughs> Well, I'm sure you, I'm sure you won't be the worst. Okay. I'm gonna state a fact. Oh. It's multiple choice. You got two options. So you'll tell me if it weren't for Mississippi, we wouldn't have this. Okay. Or this. One is the correct answer, and one is incorrect. All right. This first one might be easy. Okay. So if it weren't for Mississippi, we wouldn't have this fascinating icon of rock and roll. Is it 
Elvis or BB King? BB King. No. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Is it I'm Elvis? That's, that's, it's, it's Elvis. Oh, it Elvis is, is ori- Elvis. Is originally from Mississippi. You're right. I'm now envisioning this home that I okay. Yeah. Better next time. Yeah, you you know you got a few more chances. I'm always like everything all black. BB King. You right. Know? <laughs> I know. I understood. And actually, I was like, she's probably going to think that. You know, I understand. Yeah. Everything all black. It ain't always on this one. Okay, all right, next one. Yeah. If it weren't for Mississippi, we wouldn't have this hit show that shot over 300 episodes in Chicago. The Oprah Winfrey Show or Donahue? The Oprah Winfrey Show. (laughs) Yes, correct, correct. That's right, that's right. You got it, you got it. Beautiful. If it weren't for Mississippi, we wouldn't have this famous singing sibling who is also a reality TV regular. Ray J or Omarion? Ooh, Ray J? <laughs> yes, yes, correct, correct. You got it, you got it. Okay. Wait a minute, ain't that Brandy's brother? That was going to be the clue, but like that's... that's so good. I, I'm, I'm, I got it, I got it. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Okay, if it weren't for Mississippi, we wouldn't have this television station that for 40 years has been a cultural hub for a community of folks passionate about music videos, entertainment, and lifestyle. Is it MTV or BET? I'm going to say BET. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yes, correct. All right, see, see, all right, you're getting it, you're getting it. Robert L. Johnson, the founder of BET, was born in Hickory, Mississippi. Hickory. Hickory. I love all the small name towns Uh, in Mississippi. Yes. I'm in in the biggest city in Mississippi. Yeah. Jackson. 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 All right. If it weren't for Mississippi, we wouldn't have this crossover hit that was featured in the Con Air soundtrack. How Do I Live by Leanne Rimes or Don't Want to Miss a Thing by Aerosmith. Oh, I think it's the Aerosmith song. That, that, that's incorrect. Okay. It was Leanne Rhymes. How do I live without? I didn't know she was from Mississippi. Yeah, she's from Mississippi. Wow. Sure enough. Did you did you listen to that song as a teenager? Do you remember like crying? I love the song. Yeah, I love Leanne Rhymes. I just didn't know where she was from. If it weren't for Mississippi, we wouldn't have her or the song. Oh, we have some gems. Yes. <laughs> okay. Last one. <laughs> if it weren't for Mississippi, we wouldn't have the voice of these famous characters who you'll hear plenty of with your Disney Plus streaming subscription. Darth Vader and Mufasa or Iago and the Aflac Duck. James Earl Jones. He's from Mississippi. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yes, yes. <laughs> Correct. James Earl Jones. That's my James. It's just a deep voice. I, I, that was not an impression. You got to come down like two more octaves. Like James Earl Jones. Ooh, yeah. Mufasa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Everything the light touches. That's actually pretty good. That was good. That was good. Yeah, I, was, I impressed myself with that one. Well, thank you so much for for being our guest on If It Weren't for Mississippi. Well, I'll just ask a few more like getting to know you questions, and then questions about like your career. So, um, I'm curious, what's a country or a different state that you would like to live in? Because you've lived in a few different states already. So where's a place that you would love to live? One of my dream locations is Mexico City. Mm. I love everything about like the culture, having access to like ruins and the food, 
the people are beautiful. I love Mexico City. Um, I was going frequently. Um, there's a lot of art fairs in Mexico City, but also it was just <clears throat> when I was living in Houston to get a flight from Houston to Mexico City is literally the most inexpensive flight and it only takes an hour and a half to get there. So it's like one of those places that would be close to family, you know, they could mm-hmm. come and do a weekend trip. Like I've, I've like mapped out what does Mexico city look like, you know, living in yeah. with my family. And then my husband, Jawad is a musician. And so he already has like a community of musicians there. And it's just like such a beautiful, mm-hmm. beautiful place all around. So Mexico city, definitely that would be number one. I have other spots, but I, I know I saw I saw you thinking. I was like, well, what's number two and three? I'm just curious now. I saw that look. There's a Netflix series about cooking. It's like these wonderful chefs that kind of just explore the history of how they came to be where they are. And one of the chefs, I'm forgetting her name, but she's based in Los Angeles. She talked about when she was first getting her restaurant started, she just had a baby and her and her husband needed a full on break from like all things. Mm. So they went to this little villa in Italy and they rented a house for like three months over the summer. And that just inspired me so much because I was thinking, well, Jawad and I could do this with our family and our baby, just like go to this small villa and drink wine and eat all the pasta imaginable and just like be with the people. So that is like on my, speaking of visioning, that's definitely one I don't know where exactly, but Italy is just, and it's yes. just a summer living home mm-hmm. that Perfect. you can rent out. That's it. Like we summer in Italy. A summer in Italy. Like where's Ryan Dennis at? She's in Italy. Yes. Summering. And now, you know, what we've learned about, you know, working in the pandemic is that you can do anything anywhere. Like there's no reason for me to just be grounded to my seat. Mm-hmm. So catch me on an email while I'm in Italy. Yes. <laughs> catch me on an email. I love that. What is one of your favorite songs that you think would surprise people? Such a great question. <laughs> yes, I'm so excited. My favorite song, mm-hmm. I'm going to say right now, like my 2020 song that I play almost every other day is Savage, the remix by The Stallion and Beyonce. <laughs> Love it. I think people don't think of me as like listening to ratchet music, but it's actually, a. I love everything about it. Mm-hmm. One of my best friends was always says like, it's amazing because you're the type of chick that like listens to ratchet music on the way to a yoga class. And that's me. <laughs> I love it. We love to see it. Love to see it. So that is, it's just such a good song. It is. Like a theme. I love when Beyonce adds herself to a song and just is like, okay, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna rap, I'm gonna sing, do catchphrases. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like those okays, it's like. Okay, I love it. Yeah. I love a falsetto in the middle of the song. I Like Beyonce, I guess we always knew she could kind of like sing rap though, right? Like No, right. No, No, the remix, it was there for us. Yes. Yes. Okay, so it's, it's, it's been part of the love that we share for Beyonce, but it's also kind of like when Beyonce comes on a track, you're just like, okay, and, and right. shut it and down. And now it's a Beyonce track. Oh. Right, exactly. <laughs> we like, love you, the oh, stallion, though. And it's just so Houston, right? Like, I think being in Jackson, mm. I'm always, like, making and longing for H-Town. So that, yeah. that sets the stage for me. 
And I love it too, because there's like no one on the roads in Jackson. And when there is, I feel like, A, I turn the music up in my car so loud. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I'm just like out here, like with my rhymes and Meg and Beyonce. And people are like kind of looking at me in the car, like, are you okay? And I'm like, oh, I'm a savage. You know, I'm doing the dance. I'm just like, what's happening? But it feels so good. (laughs) Feels so good. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now, uh, given your work as a curator and the many things that you do, who are some of your favorite contemporary visual artists? Oh, Eric, that's always such a tough question. Uh-huh. That's such a tough question because I love so many of them, but an artist that constantly keeps me inspired is Simone Lee. Mm. Simone is based in New York and Brooklyn. She just um, was honored to be the American in the American Pavilion at the Venice Biennial. She has found ways to uplift Black women in her work. Uh, she's, she does sculpture, and, and she's just incredible. She's grounded, and she is a visionary. She is brilliant, and I just love how she's able to create supportive networks around Black women, and how it shows up within her sculptures are meditative and and lovely and the essence of a Black woman actually shows up in her sculptures. And she's really one of my favorite, favorite artists. I'm all constantly inspired by her. Gosh, you know, I think there are folks like um, all visual artists. No, no. I think let's expand it beyond visual artists. And I said favorite, but, you know, somebody, people that you want to speak about today. Yeah, Jason Moran is a musician. He's from Houston. He's a, mm. a pianist and so much more. Um, I'm constantly inspired by the way he puts composition and music together. Carrie Mae Weems is a visual artist. You know, younger artists, I'm thinking about Aya Brown, who she draws a dress woman. And I've come into her um, her work recently. She, in 2020, when the pandemic started, um, started doing these series on like care, like care workers, essential workers. Mm -hmm. And her drawings are just incredible. She's really sensitive. She's young, but really thoughtful. And I just love the idea of highlighting essential workers during this time when, you know, again, it's like, who's being overlooked, who's not being cared for. And I think through her drawings, she is asking us to even put forth energies to show care for folks who are on the front lines. Jamal Cyrus is an artist who's based in Houston, does a, a myriad of of work, but sculptor and performance artist, um, super inspired by him. He's, you know, I love thoughtful, down-to-earth, like folks who are putting the culture first as Black culture and and also finding ways to, like, speak on topics of justice and... and um, bringing that to the forefront. I can go on and on. It just there's so many, you know, beautiful artists working today and then those who have worked, yes. you know, who are not living. But yes, no that that's great and 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 I'll allow that to transition us into some more of your work. I know that you interned here where I am in New York at the Laundromat project uh, back in in 2009. And I pass by one of their laundromats uh, like nearly every day when I'm walking around. So I, the laundromat project is shout out to the laundromat project. Love the laundromat, it's awesome. Shout out to Risa Wilson and Kimiel Salami and and Petrushka Bazin, who I worked with closely when I was there. Yeah, 
Those women have been holding it down. Can you tell us a, a little bit about the Laundromat Project and how interning there may have prepared you for your current role as chief curator and artistic director? Yeah, um, so I was a fellow at the Laundromat Project. And at that time, I think I moved to New York maybe like six to 10 months prior to getting that fellowship. Hmm. I was already really invested and interested in community-based practices because of my work or like my volunteer time at Project Row Houses, which we'll talk about. And so finding the laundromat project was like just a breath of fresh air. At that time, it was Petrushka and I working in this like small um, office space on the Lower East Side, trudging up mm. to Harlem and other parts of <laughs> of the city to essentially facilitate workshops with artists in their neighborhoods. And so from the laundromat project, I mean, Petrushka and I are like still very good friends. Our, she is taught me so much about mothering and just like being a, a businesswoman because she owns this incredible ice cream shop in in Harlem. So if you don't, it's called Sugar Hill Creamery. You should check it oh, out. Oh, yes, yes. That's I Petrushka. have. I didn't realize. Oh. That's awesome. Oh, okay, yeah. So she I kind of like, spot. I don't want to say that she left the arts because she incorporates workshops and like creative, mm-hmm. creative ideas in the, in the creamery. But, you know, my, I have a best friend, a dear friend, Shawnee Peters, who I used to help do workshops because she was a fellow, um, an artist in residence, I should say. So the Laundromat Project allowed me to expand my interest on community-based practices and really find ways to build up projects with artists. I mean, the Laundromat Project also has just grown so much in the last 10 years yeah with the capacity like staff capacity and just how we were working was really dedicated to these long-term fellowships and the drop-in workshops that would happen on Saturdays and Sundays at various laundromats um, throughout the city I mean it was just such inspiring work because no one thinks about a laundromat as a site for connection and production and It took people aback. I love also like meeting folks. And so, mm-hmm. you know, sitting on some stool on a Saturday morning, getting ready for Shawnee's workshop, talking to families about what is about to happen was always so wonderful. And it really, I think, kept me connected to the people in Harlem, right? I mean, that was our my central spot and location. So it was a pretty phenomenal learning experience. And then having you know, the visionary and the founder that is Riza just being in conversation with her. I think when people consider community-based or socially engaged organizations, they think about now Rick Lowe and Project Row Houses. They think about Mark Bradford's Art and Practice. They think about the Astor Gates and um, the Dorchester Project in Chicago. And I think actually, I mean, there was like a New York Times article with this spread of these, you know, three men. Wow. um, Which was wonderful. But I'm like, where was Risa Wilson? Because she was in the thick of that movement. Years before. Years before. Yeah. And and so, I mean, you mentioned it, but the idea of a laundromat as a place where there's so much culture, there's so much community, so much culture and so much community. And then to say, we're going to bring art into this space and we're going to bring information, resources to this space. It's just, it, it, it's so smart, so genius. I'm glad that you that your time there helped to prepare you for 
kind of a more expansive opportunity, yeah. but also for that continued commitment to community and completely creating art in spaces where we don't always assume it, quote unquote, belongs right. um, or typically right. is. And I mean, it's just like the laundry, the laundromat, especially in New York, that's the place where you connect with your neighbors. Right? I can recall mm-hmm. so many times like going to the laundromat as much as I might have like hated it in the moment at times, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like doing laundry in the snow, but there right. was always that moment yes. with, <laughs> you know, with your neighbor or whomever that is in the space at the time where you're like, oh, you know, checking in, talking for hours or even having quiet time of like reading a book and just, mm. you know, building in that way. So, you know, what's also so impressive about the laundromat project is, it's a smart business model, mm. right? Like, especially at that time, you had an office space, but you're not renting or like owning a building that can, you know, obviously like tip over a small operating budget. Um, and so being able to do these kind of like satellite, collaborate with a, the owner of a laundromat in some borough is pretty brilliant, <laughs> you know? Yes, yeah. Yeah. So given both the experience in terms of art making, art curating, and then what you mentioned about a business model just now. I'm curious, with Project Row Houses in Houston, uh, where you worked for how many years, if you remember? <laughs> I should be able to Yeah, so I have a long relationship with Project Row Houses. So when I was an undergrad, I volunteered at Project Row Houses. Right. Funny story, actually, as a way to get rid of all my like tickets that I had, you know, like, um, tickets. like parking, about tickets? parking, t- parking tickets. Wait, you had community service for your parking tickets? I had, what? I know. Wait, it, wait, there's Eric, a- it's true. It's a true story. Undergrad, you're broke. I mean, let, come on now. <laughs> so I was introduced to Project Row Houses from Shape Community Center. Shout out to Deloitte Parker, who was had this community space in Third Ward for over 40 years. And at some Mm. point he was like, you know, you're real creative and artsy. You need to go down to Project Row Houses. And I started volunteering with the organization then. Prior to that, I started working at the Minnell Collection. I left, came back in 2012, and I worked at Row Houses for eight years. And so I've been, you know, in Jackson now for only six months, but this is like a recent departure from an organization that I adore. I mean, like it's a heartfelt organization for me. Yeah. And they do incredible work of, this is a small list of things, but providing studio space for artists, providing affordable housing for single mothers and supporting small businesses. So with all of that, access, I think is a big thing that, Naturally, I believe communities of color are th- considering whether it's um, financial access and also access in terms of can people make it there or how will people make it there? How did you address that in, in Project Row Houses or what are ways? that It's a great question. I mean, so Project Row Houses is one of these organizations that is often in response to the various kind of socio-political issues that are hi- happening at a pretty hyper-local level. So being in Third Ward and then it kind of reverberates out. Third Ward, I'll just speak on the last you know, few years, is really um, challenged by gentrification. Hmm. In 2016, 2017, the city invested about $33.5 million in one of the oldest parks in Texas, 
the park was purchased by freed slave Jack Yates and seven others for $800. You know, the park was, was a family park. And then this investment happened and things really kind of started shifting dramatically. I mean, Third Ward is adjacent to downtown. It's a really like attractive neighborhood now and it's turning. Hmm. Um, so Project Row Houses, our work was to support and find ways to maintain like a character, both aesthetically, spiritually, through education. And I think artists help us think about and be in dialogue with various conversations we were trying to like amplify or, you know, just giving people, it's always about access and it's always about finding different points of like engagements. Yeah. We're really also trying to combat like legacy renters from leaving the neighborhood are just getting pushed out. And so, you know, the work of establishing like the Emancipation Economic Development Council, which was this resident-led cohort to talk through and really strategize on land trust and Mm. economics and how public art shows up and thinking about and and being in conversation with like the University of Houston or Texas Southern University, which is a historically black college university in third ward, you know, these are called anchor institutions. And so Mm. how can we support or have conversations with anchor institutions to use their procurement dollars in ways that actually support, you know, like residents or skill building and professional development for folks. Mm-hmm. The director now, her name is Eureka Gilkey. We always like we were <laughs> each other's right hands and always used to laugh because people are like, this isn't an arts organization. This is like, this is a housing situation. And it's like, no, it is. It was founded by artists. We work to put forth exhibitions and public facing programs with artists and cultural workers. And the joy was being able to have these really tough conversations, but there were always like lovely sweet spots so that people would actually talk and like maybe felt kind of compelled to be okay with the push that we were attempting to do. Right. Mm -hmm. Project Row Houses is one of these, it's a gem of an organization. I mean, I think not just for Houston, but globally, because it really platforms, it platforms artists and people in ways that are not like disparate of one another. Yeah. I hope that all our listeners check out Project Row House because yeah, the work that they're doing is so important. As a storyteller myself, I'm, I'm always interested in how artists look at something or, or you know, whether it's a specific community, whether it's a piece of media, and then interpret that in their own way. Mm-hmm. So what is, what's an example, whether it's it's been with Project Row House or just throughout your experience where you curated something and discovered that this artist, the source material was, you know, Harlem or whatever. The source material was one specific thing and you were really surprised with the art that they created out of it, like with the story that they told. I'll say an example from Project Row Houses. And then, so there was, um, I organized a, sh- and we called them rounds, right? Like not formal exhibitions, just because we were, the display of work happened in these shotgun style homes. And so mm-hmm. when people think about exhibitions, it's more in like these kind of formal gallery spaces, which happen in like museums or other kind of white cube spaces. Um, 
So there was around, it's called, it was called Small Business Big Change. And I asked seven entrepreneurs and artists to work together to talk about economy in a hyper-local context. And so I'm just remembering Ella Russell, who is this cake maker. She's a baker and she has this business called Crumville, Texas. So Mm. it's cupcakes that are then stuffed with a cookie at the base. And she, for such a long time, was like selling these cupcakes out of her trunk. You know, she has developed quite a following, um, but the act of selling cupcakes out of your trunk also remind me of like screw culture and like popping your, you know, popping your trunk and like hear all these CDs and like the way that distribution happens. I just thought it was super creative and wanted to invite her to have like a brick and like a space that people could come to. And how would that elevate her business just like into the future? So she you know, accepted the invitation and literally her business increased like over 200%. And so right now you can, that was a hallelujah. Hallelujah. (laughs) You can find her on Instagram, but she also, after the round closed, we invited her to be an incubator at row houses. And so like there's a building on our, on the site, it's called the Eldorado ballroom. And on the ground floor, there are four businesses available for like rotating entrepreneurs. And so mm-hmm. Ella was really interested in like continuing this brick and mortar space. And so she has, you know, been amplifying her business from that moment. Like those type of elevations and connections and allowing folks to see like I see something in you that you can expand and like scale up your work. Yeah. It's not about necessarily like a painting in which some artists often go from a small scale painting to then create like murals or larger scale work. And I wanted her to find a way to like identify as a creative person, a cultural worker, as someone who cared about others Mm. and also wanted to scale her work up. Um, And she's done it and it's been beautiful. And like, I'm really proud. I'm so proud of that type of ability, right? And then, you know, and then there are folks like, I'm actually having a conversation with Leonardo Drew this this evening. Um, Leonardo Drew is an incredible artist. Uh, we currently have his work. It's called City in the Grass in our art garden right now. Mm. It's his first. So he makes these really immersive sculptures. They're wall sculptures. They, you know, they sometimes take over the floor. He uses materials like wood and paper, things that you might identify as found objects, but he actually like purchases the objects and then he just oxidates them and he literally like changes material and collapses what you might come to see like a plastic bag as into something so beautiful and it's a yeah so leonardo um you got me me excited i'm like i gotta get there (laughs) yeah yeah. i gotta get there i gotta see this you have to see it but leonardo you know in terms of like scale he's always pushing the boundaries on like what material can do and i'm really in i'm just intrigued by an artist who works in that way right like He's been exhibiting since he was like 12 or 13 and he's 60 years old. So to have this kind of 
body of work, but also this impulse to like keep pushing a boundary on the possibility of a, of a material is so exciting. So what we have at the museum is his first public artwork that sits out in, you know, not in a gallery or in a, like a studio. Wow, yeah. And it's kind of like this big puzzle that has been put together. It kind of reminds you of like a Persian rug, like you could go to your grandmother's house and find <laughs> this rug. But the idea is like, it kind of like, it's like Gulliver. Uh, it takes you. Okay, it's like, yes. you're like riding this kind of magic carpet, but then you see nodes of his use of material um, through these towers that are about 16 feet high. This sounds like such a journey. It's just really incredible. It's such a journey. And it's that. It's like, such a journey. I that's what it. we want. You know, that's what I want. I want to yeah. take people on journeys through an artist's path or lens and and also obviously put a contextual framework around various ideas or be able to connect something with an object or an idea to something of the past. But also, you know, there are some times when things are just like, this is very new. And like, we should, we should talk about this. We should show it. We should be okay to like take a risk or diverge from something that is a bit untraditional. So how has risk taking start you? Because hmm. just to be honest, you know, a, a Black woman interested, invested, making a career in fine arts, whether it's curation or actual, you know, uh, creating the art is atypical. So what started, what support did you have uh, around that? Yeah, that's such a good question. And one thing I think about all the time, actually, I, you know, I'd, my path is pretty untraditional, um, especially being a chief curator at a museum. I mean, I um, my undergrad degree is in communications and then I minored in art history and African-American studies. After being really frustrated with a, a major in art history, I just didn't see, I wasn't seeing a lot of representations of like me, my family, even though I grew up in a home where visual art and music was very important. Like my mother had, you know, like museum prints all over the place or like, you know, a reframed Romare beard and poster, you know, like things it. like this yes. were all over the house. The but then there. The art was always there. And then my stepfather uh, is from Ghana and there were African objects all over the house and music that just like always connected us to being elsewhere while yeah. being fully present in like our culture and heritage. So I felt really grounded and like knew formally that there has to, like within this kind of art history context, why am I not being shown the things or taught the things that I know have to be present? So I'd be like, again, I was frustrated. I changed my major because then I was like, I'm just, I need to know how to talk about the artist, right? So I need to know how to write about the artist. And so that was the desire to change my major and and shift to a art history and African-American studies minor. So I think like the risk was just there, right? Like mm. it was like, if I do want to work in a space with artists and I don't have an art history degree, how is this going to actually work? And I, I wasn't too sure, um, you know, and I was pretty nervous at that time because, you know, there's like a play, there's a way that you're supposed to like go about doing this work. It was in one of my African-American study seminar classes, I met this woman, Christina Van Dyke, who was the curator of collections at the Manil Collection. 
and I I just kind of became obsessed with her. I just love <laughs> like she was so smart and she talked so passionately about what she did at the museum and she named it, right? Like she named I'm a curator. Mm. I work with these objects. I do deep research with these objects and you know like and here are the n- number of questions that I'm trying to like investigate. After that seminar, I was like, yeah, I'm supposed to be a curator. Like, this is what it is. <laughs> I hounded her for a bit. And I, at some point, I, I became an intern at the Manil and then a curatorial assistant. Yes. I, I love, wait, I just want to point out that you said you hounded her for a bit, which just means you were like, I'm going to go after what I want. <laughs> yes. You were persistent. And that is a message. message. That's a message. Yeah. message. Again, I think the question of risk was, being persistent is a risk, right? Because mm. especially during that time, I mean, this is like t- 2005, 2006, I was 21, right? Like I didn't have an art history degree, but I was hella curious. I, w- I just wanted to like figure out how to make the puzzle work for me. Mm. And so my time at the Manil ha- was, uh, you know, really formidable for so many ways. For so many reasons. And then I left. I left Houston. I knew that I needed to get my master's and I moved to New York. Another risk because I was moving there by myself to be in a graduate program at Pratt in some way because I think just who I am and I I had built some relationships and just asked people like, who should I be in touch with? What internships can I get Mm -hmm. or like meet people? So an internship or some type of entry into either a gallery, a museum or an organ, like an organization like the Laundromat Project. Like, how can I make this happen for myself? And and here, you know, here we are. I mean, I think the risk has just been the risk has been um, maybe a, a, a recognizing that being curious and like being okay with Mm -hmm. asking for help or like can you make this connection to this person for this reason has been super supportive but also just like I pride myself on having integrity right so relationships Mm. those that I I have built and those that I will build in the future are are based on a you know a a kind of core of like doing right by people you know because you don't want to like ask someone to give you a recommendation and then you just squander your opportunity. I've just never mm-hmm. been that person. Yeah, that I love it. I mean, just hearing about the different risks, but also at the core, it's like, I'm going to take these risks, but I'm going to have the integrity to say, once once I get the re- reward of the risk, I'm going to take care of it. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm going to um, not take it for granted or take advantage of it. I have the integrity to say, this is who I said I am and this is what I will do. And I will do that. Yeah. I love that. I love it. So in terms of thinking about a 180, like a moment that you were at one place and you were like, I need to turn things around. What is one of those moments for you? And this can be related to the career or it can be related to something else in life. But what is a moment that was a 180 for you? (laughs) I've been thinking about this question for a few weeks. And I also was like, I'm not going to get emotional on this show, but I, I'm an emotional person in general. Do it. Be you. It's more personal than like career related because I think the personal always impacts like your career. So I would say the 180 for me has to do with my biological father. So um, I grew up with 
my mother, who was married to my biological father. Um, his name is Jake Dennis. And Jake Dennis, I've come to realize, had a lot of trauma, like just in life. He had a lot of personal letdowns. He was in Vietnam, you know, the PTSD of all of that and not just being like cared for, I think over his lifetime just led to a life of drugs and jail or prison and, you know, a lot of children. (laughs) You know, I think growing up, so I, I mean, I grew up with my stepfather who I, you know, appreciate so much and love, but I think Growing up with a a person who's like so shaky, like an inconsistent figure was really challenging for like a young black girl. Right. I think um, it it came with its own kind of questions and, and battles. But as I got older, I think when I was about 22 or 23, I like surrendered, like I let aspects of this vision of like my dad go. I just had to start accepting him as like a person who I know like deeply felt love for me and my siblings, but just had an inability because of his challenged life, right? Mm -hmm. I'll fast forward. Now, Jake passed away actually a week before I came to Jackson. So I had the honor actually of planning my dad's funeral and working with my siblings in a way that we have never worked before to organize this really beautiful life-giving ceremony for him and learn so much about his life through photographs and like oral histories from family members I just have not talked to in such a long time. How many siblings do you have? Uh, So I have five siblings, one of which I met at the funeral, right? So I think the kind of 180 is like that moment from being a 22 to 23 year old recognizing that like these ideas that we have around our parents can in fact change. And that's okay because like they're humans and like, you know, they are people who make grave mistakes, but um, you know, they try like people, like I think the, the kind of, understanding that like being able to show up or be in a relationship with someone can often be based on like what they are able to give you or like how Mm -hmm. they're able to show up at a moment in time and not hold them not like tear them down when they're already internally tore up Mm. you know what i'm saying that's yes that's a that is message that is a message yes (laughs) yeah i mean i think since i was 22 or 23 like realizing if this is my dad like other people are also probably going through so many things that we have no idea about and finding ways to like show care and attention and putting my own self to the side because you know as much as I might have wanted a certain type of relationship to happen, sometimes that it just doesn't work out like that. And maybe that's just about, you know, being like a young woman growing up. But I do think so much of that learning and that 180 happened from this really personal relationship with my father. And also just recognizing that 
you know, I think even the relationship with him helped me recognize how much of like injustice there is through, you know, like rehabilitation and prison, et cetera. I mean, now it like, Mm -hmm. as a 36 year old woman, it makes so much sense. But when I was younger and then like even being a young 20 something, you're kind of naive, right? You're like, why Mm -hmm. do you keep on doing the same thing when there are all these things to support you and quote unquote, help you do better. But I think that is something that I often try to be mindful of. Mm -hmm. My 180 was recognizing that the people that are put in our lives that are supposed to be the closest to us have inherent flaws and traumas that they're dealing with. And recognizing that people are human and it's about showing up or being responsive to where folks are at a moment in their lives. recognizing like the systems that exist that are at play that can keep people in these cycles or patterns. And, and maybe, maybe even if the idea is like, Oh, this should help them. It's like, who is it really to help? You know, who, who is it really in service to? Right. Yeah. Oh, and that's, and that's powerful when I consider your work and the work that you're doing, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's that, it's that recognition. And I think being able to plan or organize my dad's funeral like that also was another one of those like, oh my goodness, this is a this is actually a healing moment, right? It's like healing because I actually feel so spiritually connected to him to this day. And I think like recognizing just like being with people where they are in this realm is so important. And it gets hard because everyone is just going through all of these emotions and feelings and to- it's just so topsy-turvy. But if we can find ways to just show up when people are maybe like asking for help and not necessarily like explicitly saying it or just, you know, want to have a moment to mm-hmm. have like a fun phone call, you know, without like addressing what the issue is. Like there's always a, a time and a place to, I think, address the issue, but finding ways to just like flow and be a bit more present is really important. I have been longing actually to like hear my dad call me on the phone and say like, how you doing Ryan L. Dennis, which is like, he's the only person who says my full name and the way that he does it. And it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, those are the moments before that I took for granted, you know, at times. And, and I think, yeah, just kind of recognizing who is in your life, how they're in your life and like what they're actually giving you. And what you're giving them can be such an inspiring, like enlightening thing to think about. If you like really critical about the relationships that you have or, you know, critical about like when you don't need those relationships in your life at a moment in time. Right. Like Mm. I had to kind of consider that at some point between the ages of like 17 and 23. Like I just can't function with this. My dad and my life in the way that he's showing up, it does not work for me. Right. Hmm. But then, you know, through therapy, okay, shout out to therapy, um, (laughs) you know, through conversations with my mother and and others, like you just begin to, yeah, it's like it's about accepting. It's about accepting, Mm. but also like 
caring for yourself through these kind of like ways of accepting who other people are. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which we are. It sounded like what you did or what you discovered in when you were 22, 23 was that you you may have been holding on to things and expectations of your father and kind of deciding that you needed to figure out a way to accept him for who he was. In various moments in time, though, right? Because it's Mm. always an evolution. Mm, That's good. Yes, Yes. You know what I mean? I think people have an opportunity to, like, there is a core in people. But yeah, it's growth. And it sounds so, of course, but not really, because that's hard work to do. Right. It's actually hard work and it's intentional work. And it it requires like sensitivity and care from like the external you and the internal you, Mm. you know, since making that 180 in kind of your mindset, how has it affected you, your family and to a certain extent, your career? I check in with people like even if it's my colleagues who like I've been in Jackson for six months and I've built these relationships with a number of my colleagues via Zoom. But I really do ask, like, it's like a heart and a head check. That's what I I ask people where they are today. I ask them, like, are you able to show up in this work today? Do you need some, like, a mental health day? I just, I really try to platform that because I recognize that there's just so much going on in people's lives. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people don't even understand how to answer or like address these questions for themselves. And maybe my prompt, my sharing a moment of care will allow, you know, something to kind of be triggered or sparked within them. I think from, um, you know, we haven't been able to really, you know, gather in person here, but like my work at row houses, people will all anybody like it's always so shocking like a homeless person can come into this organization and you feel so comfortable with them or like you know someone who's visibly having a a breakdown you are you know like you're able to calm them down and like sit them and show them like this space is for them and I really attribute that to my dad um and that relationship because Mm. my dad was like one of the most charismatic handsome people I've ever met. He was an Aries man through and through. (laughs) He was like so focused, but like, and super smart, but you would never know for a lot of people, like all of these other things that were going on with him. I think I've tried to like carry that with me and through my work, like the check-in for me or like the kind of cheese with a range of people is not just because like it, uh, it it is actually with care and sensitivity that I'm interested in moving and I want people to feel that. I don't want people to come into the museum or in any organization that I work and feel like I'm like speaking above their heads or there's this kind of air to me that I can't I can't connect with you because we're talking about artwork or I want to be able to talk to about artwork and I want to be able to talk about, you know, <laughs> politics. And I also want to be able to talk about like Beyonce, whatever, ch- Beyonce, <laughs> Beyonce <Yes. Okay>. or <laughs> yes. I want to be able to do all of that because I think yeah. that enriches the experiences and it just platforms people as whole people. Right. Like mm. Mm. Yes. in general, I'm never, you know, I'm never above or below anybody like i'm i'm walking with folks 
Um, and I want that to show up in my work as well. I love it. I love it. I love it. And I so appreciate um, that care is essential to your process, you know, and I think that whatever powers that have existed that have suggested that productivity is the only way to view progress is through the lens of, okay, how much did we get done? That's like, how are you? <laughs> how are you? Can you continue to work? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, that's mm-hmm. got to be essential to us being able to thrive and not just be worker bees and not just right. do it because we have to, but it's like, I'm doing this because I'm able and I want to. Right. The fact that there's so much care in your work and how you approach um, all the things that you do is, is beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I was thinking like, how personal does one go? But I think it is is important to share because again, it's like here, this is a full, like this is a full yes. person. Um, it was, I was just vacillating between so many things, Eric. I was like, okay, I'm gonna just talk about this one thing specifically, but that is the thing that always shows up. And it, yes. I think people will probably understand and understand Absolutely. that in, in ways and, and hopefully it in, inspires folks to just like be more present with people because Mm -hmm. if any if anything is being articulated right now in this moment is like we should have been caring for people yes in deep ways (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. oh i and like when i think about um everything from my journey with my parents and recognizing oh they're human you know they're flawed and when i went to vote there was this older woman who I was apparently the last person that they were. <laughs> I was like rushing to the polls. Uh, early voting, though. Early voting. I didn't almost. Anyway, <laughs> early voting. Uh, and I was rushing. And they were like, you the last one. I was like, oh, OK. So then after I placed my ballot, mm-hmm. like this, this older woman was dancing. And I said, oh, that's so nice. She's like, thank you, sweetheart. You, you came and you did your civic duty. And I was just like, oh. Just the joy that she showed that she cared, but also celebrated me, you know? Yeah. So anyway, yes, our, our humanity is is essential and remembering that and recognizing that and celebrating it, but also not holding people to expectations that they can't live up to or they're not prepared to live up to. Is, is, right. Can be a journey, can be a journey. So I typically, I end with a quote that uh, we can both respond to. And I, I want to thank you also for being so open because at the core of this podcast is the idea that our stories can heal other people. Mm. Um, so I just want to thank you because I know for sure there are going to be people out there listening who are going to feel heard, uh, who are going to be enlightened, but also who definitely are going to heal from hearing your story and your journey. Thank you. Um, so here's, yeah, thank you. Here is a quote from James Baldwin, actually. Love does not begin and ends the way we seem to think it does. Love is a battle. Love is a war. Love is a growing up. I fully agree. Love is action. For sure. Love is an action. And love is a growing up. I love hmm. I love that. Yeah, you know, like like that's just so deep because it's it's endless. You know what I mean? We don't stop growing up. So it's like that process of growing up. Mm-hmm. The idea that growth is essential to love. It doesn't just right. start when you come into this world and you see your your mama. It's like yeah, that that's one type of love. But the really love is a growing up. It's so true. I mean, and so like relevant. I think to our conversation and like even thinking about like some a figure like my father. 
love is a growing up. That's so true. Yeah. I'm even, it's like, so um, that's such a beautiful way to end. And like, too, I think about, I've been married for nearly a decade. Mm. <laughs> like our love is like, like in, in so much like full bloom right now but mm. between our, my husband and it's like it wasn't this 10 years ago or you know yeah, what i mean yeah, like totally. it, and it is in fact a growing up and it's not something that stays the same it like actually takes maturity on all of our parts to be in full bloom of love and like i'm sure it will look so different even like the relation like my mom who's like my best friend like the love is like it is in fact about the growing up. I love that. Who said that? <laughs> James Baldwin. Oh, yeah, James Baldwin. Oh. I mean, he he endlessly has gems and things that I go back to for sure. Mm. And just hearing that and thinking about your daughter, who I, we briefly saw, what's something that uh, you're excited to share with her? I mean, I'm sure there's so many things, but. Just given our conversation uh, thus far. Oh, Eric, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, cheers. Ooh, because you know when we start talking about that baby. Um, um. Well, you know, I like I'm flawed and I make mistakes, and you know, um, I'm meant to like think of me as this figure who is not able to grow. Like I'm, I'm like, I'm her mom, but I'm literally here. Like I think of myself as a guide to support her in the ways that she needs and wants to grow. I hope that I can instill this kind of um, understanding that like we're growing together, right? Like, and I'm not some all knowing person, like as she grows until like, we're both sitting on a porch old somewhere. Like I, you know what I mean? I can't, can't wait for it, but also being present. I see so many kids that like, just like so scheduled and like not living mm-hmm. their lives as children. And I remember being like such a free spirited child. And like, there was so much joy in all of that. Yeah. I mean, I had dance and I had art classes and church and all of these things, but my mom always found a way to like not pressure a situation. Mm -hmm. And I think that actually contributed so much to the way that we communicate in the relationship that has been established of openness and being present. And I hope, Mm. I can only hope, honestly, that that shows up for me and and my daughter. Uh, I love it. I love it. So beautiful. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I'm going to wrap up. I'm like emotional too, because you just shared so much. Because your daughter's 14 months, is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm sure watching all that growing creates so much excitement and so much, so many moments of celebration. But it's like, but the world, you know, know what I mean? I know. But the world, and especially right now, having a, Completely. a young child, it's uh, sure over overwhelming. Yeah, there's some mornings when I wake up and I'm like, I'm sorry. Because, <laughs> you know, like, I'm so Cause sorry. Because of the world, but... You know, you create your home as a sanctuary in a in a space that when she does go out, she feels fortified, right? And and we just keep going from there. So we don't move in fear. Not in the That's Taylor right. household. <laughs> hey, we don't move in fear. Message. We don't move in fear. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Okay, well, uh, Ryan Dennis, thank you so, so much for being uh, a guest on the 180. I want to make sure 
that people stay connected with you so folks can follow you on social media, Instagram. Do you have Twitter as well? No. You don't do the Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's stick to Instagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I understand. I'm on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> so you can follow Ryan at Ryan Dennis Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R, at Ryan Dennis Taylor on Instagram. Check her out. Stay connected with her and hear about all her amazing work. And maybe, I mean, I don't know if I don't know if you got your your, your child on there, but you know, but stay connected with Ryan. <laughs> there's a few, there's a, a few, few photos. pictures of the cute baby. Um, and is there anything that you want to shout out that you have coming up that you want to talk about before we wrap up? Yeah, I mean, um, definitely I feel like I keep my Instagram pretty updated through, you know, uh, especially via stories. Um, but please check out the Mississippi Museum of Art. If you find yourself in Jackson, yes, please let me know. You can always DM me. I'm so open to that. I also say check out Project Row Houses. Like support your local arts organizations and support your local artists. Find ways to connect with them, purchase their work, um, and just, you know. Especially right now. Especially right now. There's so many wonderful organizations. And so do your do your work. Be curious and support as much as you can because the arts is part of our culture and we don't want that to go away yes we need your care that's right Hmm. Mm -hmm. thank you all for joining us the 180 is produced by david treatman with audio production and editing by mike luno original music composed by jared landon and sung by yours truly and digital portraits by byron mccray If you like what you heard, tell your friends. We need your help to spread the love and inspiration. Follow us on all social media at The180Pod and visit our website at www.the180pod.com. If you want to help support these stories, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. You can get access to chat more with me. You can also get exclusive content, merchandise, and you can hear episodes early. Visit our Patreon at www.patreon.com, The180Pod. Until next time, I'm your host, Eric Lockley. Take care and be blessed. Know that you'll have a blessing if you just keep on pressing. Don't stop, keep going, you can turn it around. The 180, yes, it's a big change. The 180, your life won't be the same. The 180, you can do it. Say yes to your beautiful future. The 180, yeah.